Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. My name is Drew Horning, and welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Today, we have Raj Kapoor with us. Raj, would you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Raj Kapoor. Uh, I attended the Hoffman process uh, in end of February, March 2019, and my job is Chief Strategy Officer at Lyft. I also uh, started a nonprofit recently. Uh, in response to the pandemic called worldwithoutcovid.org. Raj, can you share a little bit about what happened in March of this year that led you to start that nonprofit? Yes. Um, Mid-March, I was, uh, you know, we were aware as a country of, of the fact that there was COVID and it was happening in other places mostly, but it was starting to come to the US. And I think um, in general, um, there wasn't quite an understanding of how bad it could get or, or what it was about. And I had a trip planned uh, to a reunion with some friends in Colorado. And um, when we were there, we saw over the weekend, we came on, I think it was a Thursday night, and we saw by Sunday, the situation was getting worse and worse every day. And in fact, we left Sunday and the airport was about to close down the next day over. And uh, there were people from all over um, in that location. So from New York, from, from uh, parts of Europe. And so I realized now that it was a hotbed for the virus. And uh, I came home and I felt okay Sunday. Then Monday, I started feeling sick. Uh, had a lot of flu-like symptoms. Um, had a temperature. Uh, had, a, had felt a lot of fatigue and aches. And... Uh, and given what was going on with the virus, I thought I, I should really try to get tested. And I was lucky in the sense that someone on the trip had was able to receive a test as soon as they came back, and they were positive. And so that enabled me at the time when testing was very difficult to get. Um, they were prioritizing people that were in contact with a definitively positive person. And so I went in for a test uh, through a drive-through on Tuesday. And, um, and I was feeling worse on Tuesday. So I, I knew that um, there was something going on. And uh, it was quite an interesting experience uh, because at that point in mid-March, um, it, it felt like this wave had just hit all of us. And uh, there were people in hazmat suits all around at the San Mateo County Event Center. And um, they, they had multiple checks. Roger Karin gave me the nose swab. Um, and I was on my way. And I thought I would get the results back maybe in a day or two. And it took nine days, actually, to get the results. And during that nine wow, days. Nine days. Yeah. Yeah. Nine days. Nine long days. Um, my symptoms progressed. And luckily, they did not progress to the point where I had significant respiratory issues, which we were hearing about every day uh, at that time. But all of the other symptoms were there. The sense of taste and smell were lost. 
and there was a, just a continued fatigue, a kind of dull pain in the back of the head. And I think, you know, so it was certainly hard dealing with it. It wasn't the most sick that I've ever been, but from an emotional perspective, it was probably the most emotionally sick uh, that I was in anticipation of the unknown. And this is where I would say I, I did call upon some of the work I've done at, I learned at Hoffman around checking in, especially listening to my body and really trying to understand when fear is arising in, in my emotion and trying to at least observe it. Um, it was very hard at first, uh, but that helped me, even if it wasn't perfect, just trying to displace myself from the fear uh, was beneficial. And the fear was that you just didn't know what was going to happen next. So I would go to bed at night and try to do the quadri usually a quadrinity check-in to allow me to sleep because I was worried when I wake up, what was I going to experience? What was going to, what was going to happen? And um, it was also interesting because over a few days, it started to subside. And then I felt like I was getting better and I had more energy and I could go outside for longer walks. And I thought, okay, I'm recovered. And then uh, I was reading about the second wave and the second wave usually hits people after you have a period where your body fought it, uh, it comes back another response to the virus and it came back even stronger. And so another wave of worry about, well, could this be worse than the first wave? And of course, you're, there isn't any definitive information Articles are coming up every day saying different things. At that time, it wasn't clear whether you should wear a mask, not wear a mask, and there's lots of debates going on. So I would say, you know, just the lack of information caused the fear um, and uh, was able to, to kind of get through it. The, what, I, what I noticed happening also um, during that time was that there were some other friends that were wondering if they had it, and there was a lot of fear. And uh, I thought it would be useful if I go public with what happened to me, because there was almost a stigma that people were worried about talking about that they have it. And I wanted to be honest. And I, and I said, look, I have COVID. Uh, I put it out on Facebook and I let people know if there's anything that I can do, because I know going through it that this is a difficult emotional roller coaster. I'm here for you. Just call me. Didn't your wife also contract it? Yes. And, and this happened a few days. I would say probably five or six days after I took a test, didn't have the results yet, but she started to feel similar um, symptoms. And because, and she was also, she's a doctor, she's internal medicine. And so she was able to get tested and she thought she was going to be called to the front line and so she was very worried about that, which is that she wouldn't be able to help if, if she has this virus. And so she went in and got tested. And also her results came back a, a bit faster than mine that she was positive, too. Uh, and, and, and I had tried to social distance. I tried to stay in a different part of the house. And I've got four kids and tried to stay also away from them. Um, but I think invariably it's very hard, especially now that we're learning that a lot of the droplets stay in the air uh, for quite some time. And and it wasn't clear to be wearing a mask necessarily at the time. So uh, she also experienced similar symptoms, luckily also not a lot of respiratory issues. 
And so after I explained on Facebook that I had this, um, I, I got an outpouring of people, some of which said, yeah, I've been tested and, and I want to talk to you and I'm scared. And, um, and, I, and I was happy to talk to them. And the other thing that happened was that uh, there are a lot of good people, many of which also did the Hoffman process in, in, the, in the Bay Area, uh, entrepreneurs, people in tech that took it upon themselves to see if they can help. And what they ended up doing was um, getting different tests from Germany, from China, around serology. They're called it's called you know to see if you have the antibodies, and uh, and and they wanted to see if they were working or not. And so they were desperately trying to find people that were COVID positive to see if they were if they were valid, if the tests were valid. And so I literally got a, a lift ride of tests sent to me from friends, and my wife and I did the tests. And I started to think about this and talk to her about it. And I said, look, there must be a lot of clinical research. She said, absolutely. And, there, and she also pointed out that there's a big problem usually in clinical research is that it's, it takes a really long time to find people, to volunteer, um, to participate in these trials. And so when I looked at what's going on with the pandemic, it's really three big things that we're worried about. Um, we're worried about testing. How can we do it better, faster, cheaper, more accurately? We're worried about treatment. What works, what doesn't work if you have COVID. And of course, we're worried about a vaccine, which is how do we prevent people from getting it? And and so And Raj, that that hasn't changed from the the beginning until now. And I imagine uh, into the future it's about uh testing, uh, uh a vaccine, and then also treatment. And treatment, yeah. Those those issues still remain. There's more solutions on testing, but it's not done. As 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 you'd probably know, that we're we're going through a, a significant uptick, and we're also now short on supplies, like reagents for testing. So, unique new ways of testing can be helpful that don't rely on the traditional supplies of no swabs or any sort of reagents. And so, after experiencing this influx of requests for testing. Um, and doing some research online, I found that there was a need. Uh, and there was a need for people to to volunteer. And then in just talking to friends, it, it's one of those things that affects every single human being on the planet. People wanted to make a difference, but they just didn't know how. So I, being an entrepreneur and being a tech person and being a student of marketplaces, I thought maybe there's an opportunity to create a registry, a marketplace, but it's really a registry where you sign up and you answer some questions about yourself and where, what your conditions are. And then on the other side, you get in matched and can enroll in really critical, urgent, vetted clinical research trials. And I looked online and I didn't find anything for COVID in particular and nothing that was very consumer friendly. And I reached out to some more friends and someone introduced me to a company called Clara Health, who does this for a broad variety of diseases for the last couple of years, startup, young company. I reached out to the CEO. Uh, and immediately he and I agreed that we should do this and we should take their platform and create a nonprofit, make it free to any consumer, make it free to any institution who wants to list COVID research. And you can list on the government. It's called clinicaltrials.gov, but, but it's not very consumer friendly. So we made it very consumer friendly. We launched uh, within two weeks, worldwithoutcovid.org. And it is a registry. It now has over 1,400 trials 
uh, on it across testing, treatment, and vaccines. So it has probably a, a mostly comprehensive, and it's global. And what's fascinating is that as we looked into the the needs on those trials, and you add it up, it's over 20 million volunteers that are needed, and it's growing every day. Wow! And when you say consumer friendly, I'm imagining, you know, myself and other people trying to navigate that uh, consumerhealth.gov site. Clinical and, trials, yeah. Uh, clinicaltrials.gov and 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 struggling and and you're a kind of a go-between to introduce in a, a way that help all these clinical trials meet volunteers yeah and it's like you know i thought about think about google you enter a search word and it's bringing you the most relevant results based on whatever the search term that you entered so similarly here i want to enter a person and their conditions and give the most relevant trials that they could participate in so that they can sign up easily. And the other piece that we learned was that it's even if you proceed to sign up, there's a very large drop off rate. About 60% of people drop out of the process because it's either too complicated. They don't understand it. Um, they, they maybe were given the wrong criteria. And uh, so as a result, 85% of trials in general are delayed due to, to uh, volunteer acquisition at the right people at the right time. And as we, and I talked to some, we got some doctors to um, validate this from UCSF and Stanford and John Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic. And they all concur that yes, this is a problem. And it may not be a problem for some very well-funded companies that can go out and spend a lot of money. But what if you're a research institution or you're a startup and you don't have that? You don't have time and you don't have money. How can you, how can you do something about it? So that's really where we thought we'd step in is, is, to, is to make a difference on that. And if we're successful and we find the right trials that needed the right people at the right time, the impact could just be tremendous because you could potentially shorten the pandemic uh, by bringing something to market faster. And so have you seen, have these, have you been tracking um, an uptick in the connection between some of these organizations doing this research, doing these trials, and people being connected to them through worldwithoutcovid.org? Yeah, what we're seeing is that uh, of the people that visit the site, we still, uh, we're seeing about 25% that are um completing the registry, which is a pretty high rate for a random person visiting a, a website. And then you're seeing of those, 50% go on to actually register into and participate in more than one trial. And they're doing about 1.3 trials. So we're seeing that they are, once people are aware, they're doing it. And there is, um, there's two types of trials that's worth mentioning that you can do. One is what people usually think of, which is it's called an interventional trial. And it means that whether you're COVID positive, negative, or untested, they want to put something in you, intervene with a medication uh, that would cause they can they can measure, and and it could be a blind test against those that don't. So they also need people that don't take any intervention um, in that same trial, and they want to measure that. That's there is a need for that. Um, it's a lot more complicated, and it's a, and it can be scary for consumers. But there's another piece, which is that there are many 
institutions doing observational research where they're just trying to learn about you every day about the symptoms you have, whether you're COVID positive or not, and then track you over time and what happens. And so that they can gain as much data on the population as they can. And that's where there's millions and millions of people needed. And it literally just takes a few minutes to register and then a few minutes every day to report back on whatever observational data they need. It could be sensor-based, like off of an Apple Watch or a thermometer even, or it could be just how you feel um, in a doing kind it. kind of self-report. Self-report. And so there's opportunities for everyone. Um, and you could start out observational and you can even go deep inter more interventional. And some of them are geographically bound and some of them are uh, irrespective of where you're located. What a... Um... What a much needed thing, you know, when you think about this race to develop a vaccine, I've heard that it's unprecedented, the amount, the money, the speed, the effort, the global effort at trying to produce a, a successful vaccine. This isn't easy. Vaccines aren't, aren't always successful, but when they are, they save, I, I just saw some research Three million lives a year, a year, are saved by vaccines. Yeah, it's tremendous. Um, and it, and you know, we are, we, you are correct. We have an unprecedented effort right now. People like Bill Gates have been kind enough to front the money for manufacturing when we're not even sure if the vaccine works because he knows that it would take potentially twelve months to fire up an, a manufacturing line at scale. So um, his point is, what's you know, that's a good use of a billion dollars in the scheme of the world, if you can if you can shorten by months or potentially a year, when something comes to market. You know, you early on were talking about having COVID nineteen and the unknowns, and I, it it seems like that unknown about how do I have it or not? How long will I have it? What are the conditions? Will the economy open up? Will um, I get it again? Am I immune from it in the future? Is, do I live in a hot spot? I mean, so many unknown questions. It creates a fair amount of anxiety, of fear. It's it's a lot to manage emotionally, and it's quite provocative for us, isn't it? Yeah. And I suffered uh, in my 20s pretty significant panic and anxiety attacks. It's part of the reason why I seeked out Hoffman later in my life. Um, and so I can really understand. For me, the fight or flee mechanism was there for somewhat trivial things. For this, it's really something that is a is a valid point to bring out anxiety and in some cases panic. And so that's a good point. You know, a lot of a lot of what we do in the mental health world or the supporting people in their personal growth is to help them bring perspective that in fact this is asking, is this worth being really anxious over? But when you when you ask that question about people's survival the answer is always absolutely and that doesn't reduce anxiety 
Yeah, it's um, it is really something where you know I wish we could have everyone go through the process <laughs> at this point because um, we all know it's not perfect. It's not going to totally um, flip someone, but it just gives you some tools to make it better. Yeah, Raj. So so if everybody did go through the process. Like, what did you get and what is possible for other people were they to do the process or similar work on themselves? Yeah, and and I think that, um, so first, I would say, um, you know, I seeked it out uh, because I was just restless and I was always trying to achieve, but looking outward for achievement. And it, it just felt like the, the word that I used, I wrote down in the process of being never enough. And um, I, I, I felt like I was always moving on to the next thing. So when can I just be happy with what is? And how, when can I just be? And, and, and it was, it, word of the process came through me, came to me through friends. And I think that's probably the case for most people. And they couldn't speak more highly of it. Uh, I was concerned because I haven't done anything like that. And I had unsuccessful attempts at meditation. So I entered. And on night two, I almost left. I thought, this is just too much. I can't take the silence that's being imposed. I can't take the, the introspection. And I, I just... I need to go have a drink <laughs> and relax. And uh, but you know something in me took over and I kept to it and uh, and it was truly a transformation by the end of it. Um, the last day I just felt a different feeling and, and and it was a connection back into the true self. And I think that the biggest takeaways for me were that um, yes I had patterns and I have patterns, but that I am not my patterns. Um, those patterns are not me. That was the big, and that I have this spiritual self that is deep within me that I can call upon. And, I'll, and you know, to bring it to the COVID situation, when I was sitting at night and stressed and worried, um, you know, and trying to understand that this is the fear and label it and label it as such. And then when I wake up the next day and I thought, what would my spiritual self do? That's where I was like, why don't I take action? Why don't I make lemonades out of this lemon? And um, I think that connection that I real that I could call upon, draw upon the higher self, you know, whether it's ultimately successful or not, it was about taking action. Well, that that uh, moment in time where you wanted to leave and didn't leave, and then at the end really embodied this sense of, yes, I have patterns, but I am not my patterns. And then fast forward to when you were tested positive for COVID-19 and you're asking yourself, you're asking your spirit, aren't you? What can I do? How can I show up? What would a, a spirit response be? And it, and it really, you know, it wasn't a well thought out plan. It was just being. You know, that's a, uh, you, it's, it's uh, quite common 
to go to the do, right? And you, when you say it was just a being, what do you, what do you mean? There's a lot there. Yeah, I think um, I tended in my, in the past to overanalyze and, well, if I want to start an initiative, let me put a spreadsheet together and put the pros and cons and get a focus group of 12 people to weigh in on whether or not I should do it versus just this feels right. And this is the moment. And, uh, and, and really it, knowing when your true spirit self is speaking versus your emotional self versus your intellect. Um, and being able to, I think, and it doesn't happen to me often, I'll be honest. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still a student, but at that point it did happen. Well, the wisdom of not doing focus groups and instead, instead of turning outward, turning inward. And so I guess, I guess if we even go to much of your work at Lyft and then Snap, Snapfish. So you, you've, how does, how does your spirit support the the work you're doing in your more everyday job, so to speak, at Lyft? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, when I joined Lyft in 2016, I was seeking more purpose um, in my work than I did in the past, and I I was fortunate enough to to do good work and and. Many times purpose came out of it, but this was more intentional. And this was prior to the Hoffman experience. I didn't know, quite know how to describe it. And I think one benefit of the Hoffman experience is it gives you some labels on things that you may have even felt before. Mm-hmm. Gives you lots of words. Words to use. To yeah, vocabulary. The, when, and, yeah. and language is powerful. Uh, so I, I had this feeling that I wanted to have a sense of purpose. In 2006, um, I was exposed very deeply uh, through some work I did around to climate change and what's the impact that climate change is going to have. And at, the, at that time and continuing on, I thought, my God, I'm not sure there's a bigger issue that is more irreversible to our planet than this. Maybe it's the mental well-being of our planet, but this one is the physical being, well-being of our planet and of people. Um, and and we need to do something about it. And at the time I was really focused on awareness and, and trying to make a difference. And then over time, I realized that it wasn't just about awareness, it was about action. And in 2016, when I had an opportunity to do something new after my last company, I um, merged it with another one. I was seeking that purpose. And to me, I came back to climate and said, it's not any better 10 years later. And it's, it's, we're at a point of almost no return. And so what can I do uh, that can make that difference? What are, what are the skills that I have? Well, I'm a tech person. I, I like consumer technology. I understand marketplaces. And when I was at Mayfield, I was a VC, a venture capitalist. I invested in a, at that time, was a smaller company called Lyft. And I was seeking out advice from people on what could I do to have the biggest impact on climate, um, given my skill set. And I went to talk to the CEO of Lyft. And right away, he said, we believe that we can reduce emissions um, as we move our, our Lyft fleet to electric. 
we can reduce congestion by uh, reducing the number of cars by more people sharing rides. Um, and we can make it safer and more and and uh, lower cost if we can move it to self-driving. Why don't you come on board and help do that? And right away, again, it wasn't uh, this was pre-Hoffman, but the spirit. But now when I look back, I realize it was a spirit led decision because literally within minutes, I knew I needed to do it. And usually I analyze my career moves extensively. Um, and it was just this intersection of purpose and also trust and relationship uh, and fellowship with this person that I was uh, that I funded from a long time ago and knew him. So all those things just kind of hit. And I knew that that if I can help make a difference around um, making a more sustainable way that people can move around mobility and allow our cities uh, to grow without cars growing at the same time. Um, that seems like a really good calling. And that's what I jumped in to do. And what's that journey? It's been how many years is it? What did you say? 2016. 16. It's been about four so, years. So four years. And um, what Lyft grew so, and, and so did Uber, grew so quickly. And uh, it's almost like, you know, both companies have been around forever. And what did we do before they were there? Uh, but what has been, how has the pandemic impacted your business, your strategy, your approach to all of this? How are you navigating these times? Yeah, you know, this is similar to uh, the experience that a, that a human being has we as a corporation, as an organism, have also experienced um, fear and and shock, and and it's it's certainly impacted the business uh, significantly because people aren't moving around as much. Um, and shelter in place is, by definition, <laughs> the opposite of what we do. Um, so it is it is it has had a profound impact on 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 the everyday results. What it what uh, what I think has really come through is the culture that's been created there um, about, you know, it was always attracting people like me that want to improve others' lives through transportation. It wasn't enough that we were just making a business around transportation. So what gives us strength and what has gives us resolve is that um, the need for sustainable transportation where someone doesn't own a car is going to be as important as ever. And yes, we're, uh, the business is impacted now, but when we get out of this, we need to be there and be ready uh, for everyone. And also, uh, with the way we responded was, um, I think a lot of people called upon their spirit selves. Again, they may not have had the vocabulary, but it happened because we had people in all levels of lift do things like, for example, initiate essential deliveries where we would uh, deliver uh, pharmaceuticals or get the front line to where they need to work in a hospital. Um, and so we were able to continue on as an essential service by both governments because we just took the initiative um, to, to take whatever was given to us and, and to make it work. Our uh, bike business, we're one of the, we're the largest uh, bike provider in the United States now, you know, where you can do bike sharing in cities. And that has actually taken off during this time because people still need to get around 
and it's being used for essential transportation where people don't want to go in a car. Um, and it's a safe way uh, to move around the city. So uh, we're doing everything we can during the pandemic to make it safe for drivers and passengers. And then we're also thinking about how can we be positioned so that we can be there when people need to move around again and that they feel safe. And the other piece of it is, is that um, there's going to be a long-term lasting economic damage, unfortunately, uh, to the world. And uh, already it was challenging to own a car. You use your car 4% of the time, 96% of the time it's idle. So why are you paying for it? And um, what we can do is if we can provide our service on an on-demand basis, then you don't need to purchase a car. Um, you can utilize bikes, walking, scooters, transit, and ride sharing, all of them bundled together. And so we believe that that's going to be more important than ever as people are suffering from less income or no income, but still mobility is important to them, whether it's their job or seeing a loved one. And, and the statistics bear that out, don't they? More and more young people are foregoing the purchase of a car, aren't they? Yes. I think that uh, that is definitely the case. And I don't think that trend is going to change. It's just convenient. Um, and and you, can, you can enjoy yourself more in that, uh, during that transportation ride as well. So there's some benefits there, not just the price uh, of doing it. And when you... Earlier, you spoke about the, the Lyft experiencing the same kind of fear and unknown that, um, that people experience in this pandemic. How does a, a company navigate uh, culturally the feelings of fear, the feelings of the unknown? How can you see that operate inside you as well as it does in the company? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, when we think about how we navigate fear and what I talked about my experience with COVID, it was calling upon the spirit to lead. This is something that we talk about at Hoffman. It's like, which part of you are, is leading in the quadrinity? And, uh, and that's how you overcome the fear is that your spirit leads. In the case of a company, it's very similar leadership. You do need leadership. And the founders of Lyft uh, immediately came to the table and said, we can do this. We have been through even more hardships. You know, we in particular fought against one of the toughest competitors out there, Uber, plus all the challenges we've had since being a startup running out of money and maybe it's not going to work. It was illegal in some places until we made, until we worked with governments to make it legal. Like there's been an enormous amount of challenges. We can get through this challenge too. It took conviction on behalf of the founders um, that, and you could tell the authenticity upon which they said that because of their experience that gave the confidence in other people to follow. I love that. The authenticity of the conviction that allowed the employees and the company to follow their lead. Yeah. If you saw the person at the helm jump ship and you were on the ship as a passenger, you wouldn't be uh, feeling too good. But you would also want to know that the person saying it's going to be okay, you are sensing the energy. You're sensing the trust and the authenticity of what they're saying and judging it. Raj, as you've reflected on 
your Hoffman experience and and getting and surviving COVID nineteen and and your lift journey. What's it been like to to recall all this and wrap it in the Hoffman experience? Um, you know, as I talk to you here, I think it's been very helpful because it shows how all of this is just so related and integrated that um, the lessons that you can take from understanding yourself and the true self, and you can apply them to an organization and an organization needs people that understand their true self. It's all interrelated and how you get through a pandemic, um, how you can navigate personal relationships. So I feel like uh, there is, you know, truly an integration uh, that that is so important. In fact, that is one of the things that part of the process is an integration. Now that I think about it, um, and I think we're living it. This is forcing us to integrate it all, and in a good way. And in like all things, you know, I could, you know, there's uh, there's times of hardship, and in those times of hardship is is forged uh, some of the strongest metal. Uh, and, and I feel confident that, um, that a lot of people in the world will come out of this situation stronger and potentially seeking, uh, their inner self even more. Raj, I am grateful for your world without COVID work and for your work at Lyft. And I guess really grateful you you decided to stay at the process that Sunday night. And I'm grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I am grateful that I, I decided to stay too. And uh, I, I look forward to a, a continued relationship with the community at, at Hoffman. And, and I would leave it as um, just take a few minutes, go to worldwithoutcovid.org. I would love for people to register. It just takes a few minutes. And if you can spread the word, I think we can all make a difference on this pandemic. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Rassi Rossi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.